Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made us worshipers of you. We were born worshipers of ourselves. We easily would worship ourselves and anything else that would come along, even the creation. We were devoid of a desire to worship the Creator, devoid of a desire to worship the Savior. We were just dead people walking around. But there was a day you met us and opened our hearts to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we became new people, new creatures. The oldest passed away, and we became worshipers of the one and only, our God and Savior. And so we thank you for that. We pray for the lives of these little ones, Lord, that many would come to know you, if not all of them, Lord, and they would come at young ages, Lord, and have a lifetime of loving you and serving you and pursuing you. You would raise up godly moms and dads out of that group and missionaries and people who work hard for your glory. Lord, thank you for them. We pray for their parents tonight. You would encourage their parents. Stay the course, being faithful, and lovingly teaching the gospel to them. I pray you would strengthen them tonight as well. Thank you for their moms and dads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Numbers chapter 6 tonight. It is on the Nazarite vow. I have known about the Nazarite vow. I've thought about it and know people like John the Baptist, right, and Samson and others like that through the scriptures that seem to have that calling of a Nazarite vow, but I had really never studied this particular text and looked at it intently to understand it even more. I think what I really came out of this, I think you'll hear this in this passage, is that God has this great desire to have people who wholeheartedly will give themselves to him. People who are dedicated, devoted to him. And he gives so many different avenues for that. And tonight we're going to look at the Nazarite vow, just another avenue for someone, male or female, to be devoted to God. And this is what God is after. I think God's always desired his people to live separately for him. We see that throughout the scriptures. Even our Lord Jesus Christ said when he was on the earth, John chapter 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, right? Disciples were not of the world any longer. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you, he'd say. Later in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 16, he says to the Father, he says, they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. So there's this understanding of being in it, but not of it, right? God sets people apart for himself. When the book of Numbers, we've seen a real emphasis on God separating people for himself. He separated the Levitical tribe for himself. He separates the holy place and, and, and even the furniture was holy and not to be even looked upon. He separated Moses and Aaron's family as a family that the that the priesthood would come from, and, and that family alone would handle the most holy place and the disassembling and reassembling. He separated them for that job. 
We see him separate the deformed or the leper or anyone else that had blemishes of some way, either animal or human, would not be next to him and he would separate them. So God's holiness demands separation. We're realizing that more and more as we go through this. When we come to an Old Testament passage like this, it's quite remarkable. Here God gives a man or a woman, and this is very interesting about this passage uniqueness of this, the opportunity to voluntarily separate themselves for the glory of God in a unique way. It's not a command. If you look at this passage, it's not in command form. It was not a command. It is completely and purely voluntarily done by a male or female. But if any of God's people took on this vow, you will see tonight there were requirements that must be kept with it. There were guidelines. There were commands within that once they agreed to it to help them fulfill these things. However, the vow was for those who wanted a closer walk with God. And and think about this, and I had never seen this before. It allows a non-Levite to have a unique and special role in, in a separate, in a life of separation from the world when they weren't in the Levitical tribe. And I thought that was tremendously fascinating that God would be so gracious that he would allow any man or woman, no matter what tribe you are from, to participate in this Levitical vow, I mean, in this Nazarite vow, even though you weren't a Levite. Because as we've been studying, the Levites had this special relationship with God, right? They were there close. They were given all these different jobs and they, they ministered and lived uh, the most closest to the presence of God. And here now God takes this Nazarite vow and allows people to be set apart for him in a unique way. I've never saw that before. When we break down this passage here, we understand the conditions of the Nazarite vow in three different sections here. And so just three points tonight. I'm going to save the last section for next week because it's the Aaronic blessing on the nation. And it's fascinating. You hear us use some of that sometimes in our own benedictions. And we're going to look at that next week because I want to just devote time to that. But here I want to look at the first uh, 21 verses and look at these three sections of this Nazarite vow and then make some application for us. We're not Nazarites. We're not, this isn't for us. This is for the nation of Israel. But there are some wonderful things to learn about being separate for God. Number one, there is a holy and personal separation for, for God. Look at the first eight verses. Let me read these to you. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall sustain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from the wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced from the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. And he shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. And he shall let the locks of his hair 
on his head grow long. All the days of a separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sisters, sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation is holy to the Lord. Well, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, you can see that Moses receives this instruction directly from the Lord. He is thus charged to give it to the entire nation. This isn't just for the Levites. We've seen a lot just given to, to directions for the Levites. But here this is for the nation. And notice again, it is both male and female according to verse 2. Now, notice that we use some words here. This special vow, the Bible says in verse 2. A special vow. Um, the word special is palah in, in the Hebrew there, and it's an interesting word. It's, it wants us to understand that there's something unique about this. The Hebrew word means something extraordinary. It's often associated with something that marvelously happened, something they would mark as wonderful. But at the same time, it was connected to difficult things. We find this word used in difficult circumstances that God allowed someone to go through and so it's special and it's wonderful, and yet there's something set apart to get through a difficult situation here. The vow was volitional, so it was of the free will, right? It was an act of worship. And then you get to this term, Nazarite. Nazir is the Hebrew word there, and it simply just means to separate. But, but here we have a word that connects with it. This word to dedicate is very closely related to the Hebrew, Nazar, now, so Nazir and Nazar both have a, a very similar kind of root to them. And, and here it, it gives the idea of to, to abstain from things, abstain from things of the world in order to be dedicated to God. So you're starting to get the idea. This is a life of separation from the world in order to dedicate one's life to the Lord. Interesting enough, um, this word dedicate, Nazar, is... It's used of a vine that was allowed to grow and not trimmed like they would normally do at the end of the year where they would cut back to the branch. Uh, it's used of this vine that would just be unpruned, an unpruned stem, and it would continue to grow. Instructions we see for the Nazarite vow were given to Samson's parents, and so we see this truth used throughout the scripture. Judges chapter 13, verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Listen to this, no razor shall come upon his head. This is just one verse, there's more in there. And the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And we know that Samson failed in the last portion of verse 2 in chapter 6 of, of uh, Numbers chapter 6 here. He failed to really dedicate himself to the Lord. But in the end... The Lord restored him, and he stood and fulfilled God's plan. As you look at verses 3 through 8, there gives uh, further details to this Nazarite separation. Notice that he or she must have nothing to do with wine or strong drink, or even the preparation of it. There in verses in 3 and 4, if we read through that. Now, you have to remember, in the ancient culture, um, they were very much involved <laughs> with uh, the, the venery, right, of, of orchards and harvest and, and vineyards and all that. that was, it's, it still is a great part of the ancient world. And 
Wine was not only used for joyous occasions, but it was also had a medicinal purpose to it, right? The water wasn't great always. Um, and so wine was very much a part of their culture, very much a part of every meal. And the Israelite also regarded harvest time as a great blessing from God. So when harvest came, it's that time, I don't know if you've driven around and seen some of the local Orthodox people, they have PVC pipe booths that are they're set up in their front yards. If you, This is because of the time of year that we're in, and I don't know if they stay in there or they just set them up right now, but um, this, is, this was a great time of harvest, and it meant God was blessing, and they, they had great time of, of thanking God that he would pr- provide for their families. And so the whole family would participate in the harvest of these grapes and all the preparation to bring it from the field to the table. That was a family thing they would do. And yet, in the Nazarite vow, they were to step away from that. There are a lot of biblical warnings of the dangers of alcohol. We know that the Bible teaches that, and particularly that it was really connected to a pagan life with the problems that came from it. But regardless of how the alcohol was used, the Nazarite was to be completely separated from any of it, preparation, uh, consumption, even touching those things in their dedication to the Lord. Well, you've got to kind of think about this a little bit from an application state. Uh, when it comes to questions of Christians drinking or not, uh, pastors always get this question. Um, but it's something I think needs to be always considered, Right? Uh, I don't think the Bible says not to drink. Uh, we, we know it doesn't say those things. But I think there's probably some better questions as we think about those things. Do we really desire the things God desires? Do we desire to please the Lord in all that we do? I think those are the kind of questions we go at instead of making lists of things that Christians don't do or do do. Wine throughout the scriptures was a symbol of earthly joy and pleasure. Many times it's used in, in great ways. Brought, the, brought cheer to the heart. And still can be to this day if it's handled properly. But I think the point here in Numbers chapter 6 is that the Nazarite was to find his or her pleasure in God. Not manufacturing some kind of temporary happiness through, through consumption of a strong drink or wine or something like that. And unfortunately, I think many people who claim to be Christians today find not their joy in the Lord, but in the joy of the things of the world. And they lose that joy because of that. And I think it's because they're not seeking, or we can all do this at times, we're not seeking that deep fellowship that we have with Christ, and we're seeking to kind of straddle the fence or walk hand in hand with the world at times in often we find that leaves us very cold and joyless. James reminds the first century church that, chapter 4, verse 4, that they do not have a friendship with the world because the world is hostile towards God. And we have to understand, I mean, even as we have marked that we believe that the Bible doesn't teach that drinking is a sin if handled properly, we have to understand alcohol in the world love each other, (laughs) don't they? I mean, how many commercials can you go buy in a football game without mostly being inundated by some kind of alcohol beverage that you need this and you're super cool if you have one? 
The world loves those things. And so James says, though, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So those are things we have to think through when we think about worldly pleasures, right? And alcohol can be one of those things. I appreciate many in this church how they have handled those things. Some, some have said, I you know, just don't need that. And others say, I think I can enjoy this responsibly and thank the Lord for it. And, and uh, praise the Lord for that. But again, the Bible is clear that drinking is not a sin. But again, do you find your joy? Where does it come from? Do you need some kind of stimulant to produce joy? So we find our pleasure in God. That's, I think that's what the Nazarite vow was. Whether that was for a period of time, because the Nazarite could do a 30, 60, 90 day vow to God, or some were lifetimes, kind of John the Baptist, Samson type of guys, they would do these vows for lifetime, or even like Hannah gave Samuel to the Lord, really made the vow for him, and Samuel kept that vow throughout his life. Whatever that may have been, God wanted them to find pleasure in him and his truth. And as the more I studied this, I thought, well, Lord, that hasn't changed. How's it? Doesn't he want us to find our pleasure in him? Isn't he worth being joyful over. So we study the word. I, I hope when you study your Bible and you read it, you go, man, God really does love me. He, he really cares. He, he, he really does know me. I hope you find great pleasure in that and it, it lights your fire. <laughs> I hope that's not burning out in you. You're, you still find great pleasure in who God is. Creator, sustainer, the planner of our salvation. I hope that stirs you and still encourages you. I hope you're stimulated by prayer. That you can walk into the holy of holies, a temple not made with, uh, by the hands of men, but into the temple of heaven in a sense and walk into the presence of God through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit, and talk to God. No religions believe that, do they? It's always through another medium of some sort. Always fear to come to God. So we develop these other people, the Marys and whatever else, we can find some other way to maybe appease God in some way. That's what happened, but not us, not the true believer. I hope you find great contentment there. That's what means being dedicated to God. We find contentment in talking with him, living for him, studying his word. Um, I, I think where worldly ambitions do is they start to pull us away. And we all know that. We know the tug of the world at times, right? Pulling on you. And, and it's often in the financial world or even in the health world or, or uh, relationships with your children or, or family members. You can feel that pull, can't you, at times? And you can lose your joy over those things. I was thinking about the Spirit of God today and how He brings the things of God to us. And He makes, he makes the Spirit of God always helps us with our priorities, right? He guides and directs us to the priority of Christ, to the priority of His Word, the, the priority to love one another and exercise our gifts to care for one another, as we see on, on Sundays in 1 Corinthians 12. But you can't do that if you're not set apart for God, right? If you're set apart for yourself, you end up doing what? Being consumed with self. It's so easy to do that, right? We have this natural bent that 
when we were, before we were saved, we're bent towards the flesh, we're bent towards a fallen nature. At salvation, God gives us a right standing through the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet we know in our flesh there's that time of, uh, we can feel the world and its grip on us at times. And God says, set, be set apart for me. See, I think these are good questions for each of us to ask. And when we deal with things, whether it's drinking or whatever it is, be careful not to go down bitterness in, in a self-protecting mode. I think every one of us have to examine all kinds of things that we go, God, am I set apart? Is my heart set apart for you? Do I long for the things that you long for? Now back to the text in verse 5, we pick up here that there's a second form of separation. So the first one is alcohol and everything related to him or her, the Nazarite, was to separate from that. So that was costly. And all the families harvesting and all the things that are going on. Have you ever done a work project as a family? Everybody's out there, sleeves rolled up, doing all this stuff together. You have to say, I can't do that. It's costly, all right? There's already a cost to family event there. I hope probably you know that, right? I imagine you do. Following Christ, we always have a cost. Well, the second cost of separation here was the Nazarite was not to cut his or her hair. Now, hair is always a part of our identity, isn't it? And God's given each person a unique look, and often hair, or maybe the lack of it, is part of your uniqueness, right? I'm choosing my words carefully here. <laughs> Most of the time when we look in the mirror, <laughs> this is going to leave some of you out, you see if your hair's okay, right? I looked there recently and said, oh, Scott, you need a haircut. Right? You, you look at that. It's part of who we are, right? You go, wow, it's a little more gray than there used to be. It's part of the uniqueness, how God made us. And, 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 and I have a great advantage here of looking at you. You, you. you all have unique hairstyles. You have unique look. And some of them have your natural color and others don't. And that's okay. <laughs> It's part of our identity, right? It's, it's a uniqueness. But think about God wants this Nazarite, male or female, not to interfere in any way with the growth of their identity in God. And so here he asked them to take something very personal and neglect that in a sense. And it seems that God wants those who have dedicated themselves, taken this vow to him to invest their energy in serving him and not serving their head of hair, even in, in that very personal thing. Even in the ancient world, the cutting um, and braiding and preparation of hair was an important part of personal grooming. We know it because 1 Peter 3, 3 tells women not to get caught up in that too much. It's, it's, it uses the word merely there, meaning, yes, it's important, look in the mirror, do something about it, please, thank you, that's nice. Um, uh, that you actually care and you, you come to church and your hair is combed and you look you know, like you're presentable. So there's nothing wrong with that. So, so we know that they did that. But to keep hair that was not even at least trimmed for both men and women would be quite noticeable. Hair has always grown, right? Ancient world or today. Yeah, and I know today a long, unkept hair might be in style, I, I think. It's not mine. But in the ancient world, um, as I read on this, many theologians said that it was somewhat shameful. You were just shuffled. 
your hair would start to do things because it was not to be touched. And some of the language in the text where the locks of hair were not to be touched on tells us that there's probably um, some things your hair will do if you do not comb them out and trim them and take care of it. Was God asking these Nazarites to be willing to be out of style for him? Well, maybe. (laughs) It leads you to a question. You know, Christians, you know, we really are out of vogue, aren't we? We actually believe in this thing called marriage between a man and a woman. We value that stuff, don't we? I mean, we're really getting out of vogue. And so this is what God does. He calls people to be dedicated to him, to even maybe be even reproached because you're dedicated to the Lord. You're different than someone else, right? As young people, you know, we always were afraid to be different, but now I think they want to be different in some way. They got to somehow stand out to get noticed. But I think many of our generation here, we were like, wow, I don't want to be noticed. So being dedicated to the Lord meant you might come under reproach. Now, on the other hand, there's places within the scriptures where Israel warriors were to let down their locks of their hair as a sign of devotion to the nation as they went to war. In the Song of Solomon, the bride longs for the locks of her hair, of her groom. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we looked at that and we connected hair with gender and worship. And then we find in the major prophets that the shaving of the head was associated with judgment. One commentary I read on this spoke of that the pagan nations would grow their hair long, cut it off, and then offer it to their gods. And we're going to see that. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think it's being burned. We'll see this in a, in a little bit here because that, God did not want that to happen. So though we may not fully understand why God asked the Nazareths to leave their hair untouched here, it's clear that it was a, a source of a personal dedication to God. Now, verses 6 through 7, we see the third aspect of the separation of the Nazarite. He or she must not touch the bodies of the dead, which included parents. Notice in verses 6 and 7, parents, brothers, sisters that die. Now, interesting enough, they're the same demands that he gave to the Levites. And I like that. I'm thinking, wow, God has really let... I mean, as you study the Levites, you go, wow, they, yeah, they, get, they, get the, they get the camp close to the, to the camp of God. They're, you know, they have all these jobs. They're right next to God. They're doing all those things. And here now God has let anyone, anyone, male or female, no matter what tribe you're from, to come and be a part of this, this dedication of a life. And, and so much of it does parallel exactly what God gave to the high priest and to the to Levitical tribe, and we see some of these parallels in Leviticus chapter 21. But in the ancient world, was not, like, not unlike here. When a loved one died, it was proper to show affection to that body. It was often a display of love to the deceased. An Israelite would know it would cost them, they would be unclean for a certain time if they touched that body, but it wasn't wrong for them to show affection to a dead loved one. They just couldn't go to temple for a while. They had to go through the process of purifying and wait on time for that. And 
And yet when a child died or, or a family member was close, you can imagine the mourning that took place, just like it does today. But the Nazarite, think about him or her in that situation where someone has died very close in the family, parents, siblings, so forth. They were to step away from that, not show those normal affections um, and not touch those because God was to be first in their life. Jesus might have been referring to some of these things when he was training his disciples and challenging others who said they wanted to follow him. Matthew chapter 10, 37 through 38, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. A little later on in Luke chapter 9, we find where people are coming up and say, oh, we want to follow you. And Jesus says, foxes have holes. This is verse 58. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. But he said to him, Lord, permit me to go bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. What a statement. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I, yeah, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to go say goodbye to those at home, but Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. As I was bouncing around through the scriptures, thinking of some application to this, to this and seeing where maybe this was taught, I thought, wow, there's, there's, some real sim, there's some real symbolic connection there to some of the words of the Lord. Let the dead bury the dead. Be dedicated to me. If you're going to follow me, let that go and follow me. They would have known that, right? They would have known that there was a separation for the sake of God, for the sake of Yahweh, but yet they were so interested in maybe what their father's possessions would bring them that they would not follow Christ. Being a Nazarite would have had put you in an awkward position, especially when someone dies. Loss of loved ones, funeral services, family gatherings, Social occasions. When I was very young in ministry, my mentor had a son who was playing college baseball. It was his first year in baseball, and he got invited to, um, and he'd gone to Christian schools all his life, but was playing for a, a college in the area. And he got invited to his first, you know, baseball party, guys after the game type thing. And you can just imagine what um, Pastor Jerry, my mentor, knew what was going on. And and Jeff, his son, came to him. I'll never forget that. I just happened to be there um, with Jerry because we were working in ministry together. And Jeff said, Dad, I, I really think I need to go. I, I'm trying to be a testimony to these guys. And, and Jerry, I remember sitting there going, oh, I, mean, I'm, I don't think we had kids yet. I was just, I, what's he going to do here? I'm, I want to know what this council is going to be like. I'll never forget, Jerry turned to Jeff, his son, and said, you need to go but you need to be separate for God. And he was interested. He gave him some real cool application or principles to do. He goes, why don't you and your friend who is also a Christian on there, why don't you go, and he gave him some money. He said, why don't you go get a cooler full of Pepsi and take it with you and see what happens. Jeff still talks about this. Him and I will talk about this every once in a while. He says, man, we were the hit of the party. We walked in with this chest full of Pepsis and everybody, you know, because drinking is sometimes people just drink because, well, you got it because everybody else is doing it, right? 
And they had these Pepsis, and it gave them an inroads. And, and, and Jeff says, even to this day, there's guys who are on that team that we got to share the gospel with, and we see every once in a while. Because they decided to be separate than the world in that occasion. And that's what God wants us to do. And so this Nazarite was to love their God and make him top priority. And they, and they were to do this voluntarily, Right? It was a voluntarily vow, right? It wasn't just something they were forced and they're commanded to do. And it caused them to dedicate their lives. And they were defined by their contentment in God that I am content to keep this vow. God is worthy of it. And so I will restrain myself from these things. Even the nation rejected their own Nazarite. When you get down into the minor prophets and where men like Amos are pronouncing judgment on the nation for the evil things they've done, they bring this up. This is Amos chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says, Then I will raise up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites, God speaking through Amos. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But then he says this in verse 12. But you made Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Right there, you feel the intensity of peer pressure put on them, probably violent peer pressure. When the nation was going awry, there were still Nazarites, men who had, and women who had said, No, I'm going to dedicate my life to God. And they forced them to go against what God had given them to do. One last thought as I thought about this. I think there's a, a point of death that God wants separated from because death is the last great enemy. In a sense, God has always separated himself from death in a lot of ways. There's a great chasm between death and the residing place of God in heaven. And so death was something that the Nazarites who was consecrated to God, was to back away from it. And I, and I know this must have been difficult at times. These three areas of separation really divine, uh, divinely, in a way, as they obeyed God, to find the Nazarite pioneer, particularly in numbers, right? This is a newly formed nation that's gathering and headed for the promised land. These guys were pioneers in this. And I think some of the Nazarites... Um, were men and women who said, I will set a portion of time aside. I think that's what this is referring to. There is, there's a specific period of time that they would have they would set aside. I, we, I, I'll show you just in a little bit here where Apostle Paul does that. But then there was other men like Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist who vowed their entire lives. And notice in verse 8 here, this was the command of the Lord all the days of his separation. He is holy to the Lord. So whatever the time frame was, he or she was to live this holy life of separation. As I conclude this thought, are you struggling with joy? I know where you lose joy. I lost joy. I know where that happens. And I think it's often times where we won't set ourselves apart for God in certain areas and we'll fight that. We'll fight that. And maybe you're in that place right now. There's something God wants you to do. You know he's 
pushing on your heart. The scriptures have been encouraging. The spirit of God has been weighing on you and you fight that. What is it in your life that you need to give over to the Lord? Probably every one of us have a thing or two that we kind of put on the side burner at times. I want you to know that Christ himself says, come to me, you weak and weary laden people. I want to help you, he says. I want to give you rest. Do things my way and you'll find that my yoke is different than the world. It's gentle and it's humble in heart. Yes, it may be a time of testing. It may be difficult in some ways, but yet you'll find that God will take you through that. He will rest your weary soul because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Second thing about these vows is what happens when they break them. Our second thought is a broken vow and the reconciliation with God. Certainly, they were broken at times, right? Uh, We know we've broken promises. Probably all of us, I would imagine, everybody's broken a promise. Well, what happens if that happens? Look at verses 9 through 12. What if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defies his dedicated head of hair... Then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean, and he shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves, two young pigeons, to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of meetings. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And the same day he shall consecrate his head and shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite and shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, for the former days will be void because of his separation was defiled. Well, there's a portion here in this text that gives instructions, so these, what to do when the vow is broken. And what the Bible does here is it uses one example. It uses the example of coming in contact <clears throat> with a dead person that breaks that vow. And so this contact with this dead person would uh, cause this consecrated Nazarite to lose all that he'd done, in a sense. You can see that in the text, can't you? And so this man or this woman would begin again from the beginning. Now, there's a process here, and just quickly, I want to just go through this. It would begin with them purifying themselves, you can see in the text. And, and the males, I think that's my, my view, um, everything I've studied, I don't think the women shave their head because of the statements we see of gender and hair and so forth throughout the Bible. Um, And the the pronouns actually change here in some ways. And so I think it starts with purifying the male heads are shaved on the seventh day and they bring this offering on the eighth day. The offering consists of two doves or young pigeons. You'll see that it was equal to what a poor woman would give um, after she gave birth, or a leper who was cleansed, they would give this, or someone with a discharge. It was, it was a very uh, um, meager offering. It was not an expensive one. And then this humble offering would be received. The one dove would be given for a sin offering, be a, a really in a free will of giving this to God. The other dove would serve as an expression that they were submitting to God. I'm here, I broke my vow. I'm here, I'm submitting to you. Here, God is something to die in my place. Once the sacrifices were completed, the Nazarite can consecrate his or her head again to the Lord. 
as an act of separation and it would begin again here. Finally, there's a lamb. You'll notice that a lamb would be offered as a guilt offering and reconciliation with God would be complete. Well, I got thinking about this. I thought, well, Lord, there's a real gospel uh, connection there. Christians break vows to God. Christians break promises. We know that. We're not perfect. We have a perfect position, but yet in our daily walk, there's times of struggle. There's failure to live according to the gospel, right? Our lives are supposed to be a reflection of the gospel. We're to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We're to be learning that. There's a progressive growth and sanctification as we are being more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus in Christ. And yet we know in that progression there are some downturns as we were to graph that thing out. And we realize that there's a desire for ourselves in those areas. Something has gripped us that is not of God. And we pursue that for a t- short time till the gospel brings us to repentance. And we repent of that sin and we begin to grow in the image of the Lord again. One of the things the gospel teaches us is there's always a way back through the Lamb. And I like that in this. There's a Nazarite here who, maybe not even his own fault, uh, comes in contact with a dead person or can't resist falling on a loved one who has just passed away of some sort and his, now his vow has been uh, forfeited and And yet there's a way back, right? There's a lamb. There's a way back. There's a way back to reconciliation. And I love that about this text. It reminds me that God reminds us there is an advocate. The Lord Jesus Christ even takes on our accuser. There is a way back to the Lord. Amen? We don't have to sit on the side of the race forever and let everyone run by us because we're struggling or we failed or we're wherever we're at. There's a way back. In a sense, you start again, and you start again with the gospel, right? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for that sin. Thank you for taking my punishment that I deserved, and you took it for me. God judged you like you committed that sin. Thank you for doing that, Lord. Thank you that you have not abandoned me, that you promised never to leave me nor forsake me, and because of your finished work, I can come into the presence of the Father and worship him that I'm forgiven through you. You pray that way when you sin? As I contemplated that, as I was finishing this today, I thought, Lord, thank you for that lamb. (laughs) See, otherwise you're just back to deep knee bends and and more coins in the fountain and, and whatever else, you know, all a list of things to do to try to get back into some appeasing relationship with God, hoping that you can survive it and you may need some other person to help you and be an advocate. (laughs) That's false religion, isn't it? That's what's taught to all the religions of the world. But we have a lamb (laughs) who was slain for our sins, past, present, and future. And there's a way back. Third thought, the completion of the Nazarite vow in the return to normal life. Because of the length of these next verses, I want you just to kind of keep your finger on them and let me highlight them as I go down through them. When we look at the Nazarite, they do complete their vows, his or her. They, they come to a time frame. The more I read on this, um, 
they are, sometimes were 30 and 60 and 90 days, and, and it's extra biblical material. Sometimes you have to look for this stuff. Um, and they would take a vow for many different reasons, um, and, and they would keep these for this time. But then there would be a time where they would return to normalcy of life. And that doesn't mean they're not dedicated to the Lord, but, but if Father dies, I can actually help in the preparation of his body now. Um, I can join in in the harvest because I'm not under that vow. These are all good things that they set themselves apart from so they could be dedicated to the Lord for, those, for that time frame. And so there has to be a way back to this normal way of life. And this is what verses 13 through 21 are about. You'll notice that in verse 13 that all of this takes place at the end of the vow in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And you'll notice that there's a resemblance in the sacrifice system of the Nazarites of their consecration as well as with the priest. And we find that in Leviticus 21 and so forth. We find very similar offerings here. And you'll see that in verses 14 and 15. There's um, mostly equal and even in cost of these things. Again, what a beautiful thing God gave the non-Levite to do. But here the priest would prepare an offering which was meant for atonement for sin. It was meant to recognize the glory of God and restore fellowship with them and remind them they had fellowship with God. All this was done in the doorway of the Ten of Meanings. And the Ten of Meanings, as we remember, is really a boundary between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, right? They're at that boundary. They're right there in front of that. This is where this all takes place as they're being restored and this vow is being completed. And here, the Nazarite, after growing this hair out, um, really unkept, and the locks are grown and so forth, they cut the hair here, and you'll notice here that they burn it on the altar, and again, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think this is a sacrifice in any way. In fact, in extra-biblical material, we find that the pagans did this as worship to their gods. And I, this is my personal belief. I think God's telling them to do this because I don't want you worshiping that. Hmm. Locks and all kinds of things when you get around certain Orthodox religions have become very, very important. The way they dress, the way they handle themselves, you can just see that in them. We live in that area and uh, we watch that, and we can see that is becomes their form of holiness, right? That's, that's their identity in what they wear and how they dress and what they do with their hair and so forth. So I don't think God wanted them to do that, and so he said, cut it off and burn it. Some of the offerings that are given here are wave offerings. These are in a sense, free will offerings, and you wave them before the Lord, as we learned in Leviticus, as that the Lord is worthy of this. You're worthy of this. So there was worship in this. At the end of this time of being set apart, there was this great worship. And I thought, oh, Lord, that's when we dedicate ourselves and there's something that we're wrestling with, maybe you fast. Um, fasting is still a good thing to do, right? The things were on you, having your heart, and you spend a time said, Lord, I'm just going to dedicate towards you. And one of the ways I learned to fast was every time I get hungry, it made me pray. And, and so sometimes you get the end of that and there's great joy because you waited on the Lord, you spent time with him and, and there's worship at the end and there's this waving of God, you're worthy, thank you for the strength for letting me see this issue or want to deal with this and give it to you, Lord. In verse 19, the gifts are put back into the Nazarite's hands, you can notice that, and after this, the head is shaved. 
And this completes this Nazarite time of separation, and he or she was to return to normal life, including verse 20, it tells us that they could drink wine again. So, well, is this just Old Testament? Well, not necessarily. We do see it in the New Testament. Paul, after leaving Corinth, he stops in Caesarea to complete, the Bible says, a vow on his way to Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea in Syria, and with, and with him was Priscilla and Aquila. In Centuria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now again, I am not saying this is a Christian thing to do. This is something that our, uh, I don't believe at all that this is something we should do. But to Paul, this was his heritage, this was his culture, and he did not want to be a stumbling block in any way. In fact, there's even a better passage if you go to Acts 21. If you want to look at this, I'll just tell you what's happening here for the sake of time. But Paul's just finished his third missionary journey. He's come back to Jerusalem to report to the leaders of the church in Acts chapter 21 there. He gives this briefing of how God is doing miraculous things and saving Gentiles. And there's this great glorifying of God you'll see in that passage as the report is given. But in Jerusalem, this was a different, different area. This was a difficult place. This was a stronghold of Judaism. And many thought that Paul was evil because they said he was teaching against the law of Moses and he was trashing the, the covenants and all of those things and teaching parents not to circumcise their children. So this had made its way around the Jerusalem area. So James and the other elders, it's amazing, they convinced Paul to go with four other men who are ending a vow. You can read this letter. I know we're out of time here. Um, that are ending a vow and they're going to go to the synagogue and have their hair cut and Paul was to go with them and shave his head. And Paul does it. (laughs) He does it. And he shows that he's not against the law. He knows the law's purpose, right? If anybody knew the purpose of the law was Paul to show the glory of God and the faultiness of man, right? He knew that. But look, Paul did all of this in a very humbling way in order to protect the missional effort of the gospel. And look, we do that as well, don't we? There are times that we go, you know, I don't have to do this, but I'm going to do this because I want my family to know Jesus Christ. Or I don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody else who I know people are witnessing to. And so you, you stand on the gospel and that missional effort drives your choice of doing things. And that's what happened to Paul in this. I, I read that again this week in um, Acts chapter 21. I thought, oh, Paul, you were so dedicated to the gospel. You'd even go... <laughs> And shave your head with some other guys that were under a vow, not you. In order to give you a chance to share the gospel in a synagogue in Jerusalem. So I think the challenge is that, is God asking you to give something up for the gospel? I, I don't know what it is. I, you know, there's a few lists here for the Nazarite things. I don't think they really pertain to us particularly greatly. But, but is there something God wants you to give up? In fact, is there something that's really stopping you from serving the Lord, taking that next step to really serving the Lord? 
And they're often good things, too. Lord, we're not talking about some, you know, sinful act. Yes, you, that's automatic. Yes, Christ died for that. But often it's something that's something that we want. We, we don't want to give up. And we don't realize that God may want us to set that aside, at least temporarily, in order for the gospel to go forward in that situation. Does that make sense? It might be a freedom that you have, that you give up for the missional effort of the gospel. It might be some area that God's convicting you on to give this up. It might be reminding you of a vow you took or a promise you kept or, or a promise you gave that you're going to keep. Today, many people break vows and promises. And it's all given on life circumstances, right? Did you make a pledge to God? Are you still worshiping Him as you made that pledge? Is that something that you can see as value to the advancement of the gospel of those around you in any way? Many never commit to anything and they call themselves Christians. And I think that's what we're seeing in modern Christendom right now is there's a, there's a view of Christianity out there that really doesn't give up anything. Come as you are, right? That's what the song said. Doesn't mean that there's no giving up. There's get the gospel, put it in the back pocket in case this whole hell and heaven thing's really happening. And there's generations of people now that look at Jesus as a genie in the bottle. Well, I believe that many confessing Christians lose joy because they won't die daily to the things of God. And so obviously, we're not Nazarites, right? This is for Israel. You have to get this down. It's too many people want to run into something that wasn't given to them. The principle is being set apart and dedicated to God. That's what we take from this. And I think it's clear that God takes our vows and our promises very seriously, and so should we. And I, listen, I believe God will bless you when you keep your vows, your promises to God. It honors Him, and you do it from your heart. And so it's not hard to see the spiritual lessons here in Numbers chapter 6 today. And, and I pray that all of us will contemplate this, will think about this. And we'll dedicate ourselves for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. Think that's a worthy cause? Well, next week we'll take on this Aaronic blessing, this benediction, verses 22 through 27. What, a, what an amazing little passage there. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you for a passage like number six, Lord. I've really not ever thought as deeply as I did today throughout this week on this passage. I thank you, Lord, that you have a place for all people. Not just leadership or those who study the word for the living, Lord, but for all people to be consecrated to you, set apart for you. We can say no to worldly pleasures and desires, as Titus says. We can be aliens and strangers in a fallen world. That you're worth taking up our cross and following you, Lord, we thank you that at the end of that trail, there's a glorious end. 
which is really just the beginning of eternity. So I pray you would strengthen us, that we would run well, we'd be dedicated to you, Lord, and we would desire to be worshipers who glorify you in every aspect of our life. Lord, we're going to need help because we're fleshly and human and we're but dust at times, Lord. We're going to need your help. Help us rely on your spirit and through the all-sufficient word to do these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.